up on episode 11 of the ELB podcast. How does a commissioner on the Federal Election Commission skeptical of regulation enforce the law? Is there a sound basis for limiting foreign money in elections? Why does the FEC deadlock along party lines? And what can be done about the unhappiness of the staff at the FEC? On episode 11 of the ELB podcast, we talk to Republican FEC Commissioner Lee Goodman. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ELB podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. I'm joined today by Federal Election Commissioner Lee Goodman, who was appointed to the FEC by President Barack Obama in October 2013. Uh, he was nominated a Republican on the recommendation of Senator Mitch McConnell. Before he served on the FEC, he was in private practice, practicing election law, representing political parties, public officials, candidates, and others. And he served as general counsel of the Republican Party of Virginia from 2009 to 2013. Uh, Commissioner Goodman, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you uh, two sets of questions, uh, as I did with your colleague, uh, Ellen Weintraub, who I interviewed on an earlier podcast. First, I want to talk to you a little bit about your views on campaign finance and then about issues uh, related to the Federal Election Commission. Uh, so starting with questions on campaign finance, I, I thought I'd start with a kind of an open question. How would you describe the current state of campaign financing in the United States? Do you see problems? Do you think the system is working well? What's your 30,000-foot view? Well, uh, I, I mean, it's obvious that uh, uh, the pendulum, uh, the, the jurisprudential pendulum has swung over the last 10 years toward greater free speech. And for libertarians like me, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, for those who, uh, those who want greater regulation of money in politics because they, they're concerned about uh, the influence it might have, uh, that has obviously uh, not been a welcome development. But um, my, my view is that the more speech, the better, uh, that, the, um, that the more voices and perspectives that are heard the better, and that the people are empowered by hearing uh, more points of view, and that the people aren't sheep. The people make their decisions and uh, often choose whether or not they're even going to listen to that speech. They choose whether to be influenced by that speech, regardless of its source, and they choose uh, whether or not to vote, and then you know how they're going to vote. And uh, I enjoyed reading uh, your book, Plutocrats United, and the, uh, uh, the acknowledgement that the people have uh, a strong independent will when it comes to being led around by the speech they hear in elections. So uh, I think that the, the jurisprudential level, uh, at the 30,000-foot level, the jurisprudence has has uh, swung decidedly toward greater freedom and free speech, and we haven't seen um, uh, we haven't seen a fundamental um, corruption of politicians as a result. So uh, now at the at the Federal Election Commission, uh, ha about half of what the FEC used to regulate uh, from the late '70s through the '90s. Uh, 
and even into the 2000s has been largely deregulated by the courts. That is the the corporate expenditures that used to that used to uh, account for much of the efforts, the regulatory efforts and the enforcement efforts of the commission. But what we are left with here is, uh, I believe, a, um, a fairly consensus view that the that public disclosure is important, and uh, the Supreme Court has always endorsed public disclosure as a as a um, mechanism for people to hold their government accountable. And we're doing a pretty good job of that at the commission. Um, we're revamping our website to make all that data more accessible. Um, and that's been by a bipartisan effort at the commission. Uh, if you look at the 2012 election cycle, this agency was the clearinghouse for over $7.3 billion in expenditures. And if you look at the 2014 election, uh, $5.5 billion in expenditures. And you can, at your fingertips, you know, in the old days, Rick, when I started <laughs> in Washington, you had to come to the FEC and sit in a room and go through microfiche. Now it's at everybody's fingertips, um, right there on the, right there on the computer. And there are a, a dozen good nonprofit groups that take that data, machinate it, uh, and the press, uh, they machinate the data. They add editorial content to it to help people understand what's happening. So there's there's great accountability through the disclosure uh, process here. So that's sort of at a 30 foot level where I see things standing today. Uh, and um, and I'm happy to discuss your concerns expressed in your book as well, if you'd like. I want to turn first to questions of disclosure, which you just mentioned. Uh, we do have very good information, I think, about expenditures. We have much um, uh, less uh, valuable information about contributions, in part uh, because of how the Federal Election Commission has uh, uh, understood and, and interpreted some disclosure uh, provisions that are in the McCain-Feingold Law and in other provisions. And I'm wondering, in terms of disclosure of contributions, how do you feel the balance should be struck between both the public's interest in preventing corruption and having valuable information and assuring enforcement of laws versus the concerns that some have raised about harassment or privacy? You mentioned you come at this from a libertarian perspective. Uh, how does that mesh with your views about what kind of disclosure is appropriate? Well, as I, as I mentioned, uh, the disclosure glass is some say 100 percent full. Some say, well, maybe it's only 97 percent full. Um, that three percent of the money that was spent in the last election was spent by nonprofit groups that don't tell us who their donors are. And I remind people that that is uh, about three percent of all the money that uh, is spent, uh, you know, in the election. Um, and, and so when people think that we are uh, maybe swimming in a dark, undisclosed money, I remind people that, no, actually, 97% of it's fully disclosed and 3% of it is disclosed. We know who's buying those ads because they report them to the FEC. Uh, we know that in the 2012 election cycle that Planned Parenthood Action Fund and its state affiliate spent over $7 million dollars. We know that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce spent over $30 million. 
Uh, we know that uh, the League of Conservation Voters uh, and Crossroads GPS, we know these groups and we know they're making expenditures. Uh, what we don't always know, what we know for probably less than 10% of that 3% uh, is uh, the donors giving to those groups. And that's a function of line drawing, that you have to draw a line somewhere over how far the FEC is going to intrude into private associations that occasionally make political expenditures. And the Supreme Court has told us that our authority to regulate those groups is limited. It is circumscribed. We don't have a general writ to go into any nonprofit group that says something about an issue or that says something about a politician and to force them to give up all of their um, uh, associational privileges and confidences to tell us down to the last person who gave them money. Now, um, and the, the line that the Supreme Court has given us is the major purpose test. The Supreme Court has said only if an organization uh, has the major purpose of influencing elections unambiguously influencing elections, uh, do we get full regulatory authority to pull that group in and force them to register and disclose every donor and every dollar out as a political committee? And that leaves a line to draw because there is play in the joints on defining what is major purpose. Now, uh, the Republicans here have taken a more restrictive view of major purpose. We say that you need to look at a group's unambiguous electoral spending to determine if it has the major purpose. We don't want to count issue advocacy for fear of reaching our jurisdiction too far into the associational rights of groups. Uh, and in looking at um, the major purpose of a group, we say, if you want to really know what the major purpose of an organization is, you need to look at the entire existence of that organization. Because just because it played in politics a little bit more one year than the other, um, uh, doesn't mean that it tipped, it, it triggered major purpose for purposes of our regulatory jurisdiction. My Democratic colleagues have taken a little more expansive view that virtually any electoral activity at all that an organization engages in can constitute major purpose or give uh, or trip the major purpose wire, and that we can narrowly assess an organization's major purpose by looking at its activities in a silo of one year. Now, hold aside where you fall on that, on that line. We're down to that granular level of a debate over where to draw major purpose. And I've looked at the organizations that spend this money, and even if, even if I agreed with my Democratic colleagues for a broader view of major purpose, I don't see how the commission would get more than 20 to 30 percent of the organizations that are making these expenditures, these 501c4 and c6 and c5 labor unions, for example, I don't think that the commission would uh, capture within the political committee world more than 20, 25, at tops, 30% of those that are making those expenditures. So what that comes down to is 
30% of 3% is 1%. So the dark money debate really hinges on 1% of the expenditures in politics. Now, Commissioner Weintraub reminds me whenever we debate this issue, it may only be 1%, but it's 1% targeted at 10 Senate races. So it's, it's an important issue, I grant you. But given the play in the joints that there is a limit, we have just taken a slightly more restrictive view of it. And what's the, the, the consequence is 1% of the money falls outside of our full jurisdictional realm uh, than we might otherwise capture. So that's what the, that dark money debate is about. I would also add there is another mechanism for getting at the donors of the groups that make these types of expenditures. And uh, I'm sure, Rick, you're familiar with the U.S. Court of Appeals decision in January of this year in a case called Van Hollen v. FEC, uh, where the commission had decided to draw a fairly uh, narrow a rule for requiring donor disclosure for organizations that make electioneering communication expenditures. And uh, those are ads run within 60 days of an election that merely reference uh, a candidate over a broadcast media. And the commission uh, had adopted a rule, this was before I got here, and it was a unanimous bipartisan vote of the commission had, had uh, adopted a rule that requires those organizations to disclose their donors when they make electioneering expenditures um, only if the donors gave to the organization for the purpose of funding those expenditures, a sort of an earmarking principle. And Congressman Van Hollen sued the commission claiming that was a, that was too narrow a rule of disclosure. Well, that, this, that rule was tested in court, and the U.S. Court of Appeals just rendered an opinion in January that said the commission acted properly in the way in which it balanced the private associational rights of those organizations versus the regulatory interests of government. And I thought more profoundly in that opinion was the court's acknowledgement that every day we come to work here at the FEC, it is our mission to both protect First Amendment rights and implement the laws Congress has enacted uh, to protect the public against corruption in politics, and that there is a balance between those in every regulatory action that we take. And um, we have to recognize that balance. And where we fall on that balance, obviously, is a point of some philosophical disagreement on the commission on a on a day-to-day -day basis, but really, it really emerges in the in the big issues. I want to turn uh, for a minute to spending limits, and I want to ask you if you think spending limits are ever appropriate and constitutional. And, and specifically, I want to ask about the foreign money spending ban, which the Supreme Court uh, upheld in a summary affirmance in the Blumen versus FEC case. And, and if you agree that the, that that it's that it's constitutionally permissible and maybe normatively desirable to keep foreign money out, what can the FEC do or what can be done generally to ensure that foreign money is not flowing through these non-disclosing 501c4s or this new uh, phenomenon of LLCs, uh, limited liability uh, corporations giving to super PACs? Yes. Well, the, I, by the way, I, I 
found very interesting in your book, uh, Plutocrats United, um, your discussion of the Blumen decision and what what the foreign expenditure and contribution ban means uh, paradigmatically. If you accept that, then logically you are accepting that there are uh, influence interests that uh, go beyond just quid pro quo corruption. I, I would start by just indicating that foreign money is a, is a sort of a different kettle of fish. Uh, we regulate foreign free speech very differently in, in many contexts. Uh, for example, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Uh, we go far beyond lobbying disclosure here in the United States and say, if you're engaged in any kind of propaganda, there's going to be a restriction on your, your speech, foreign interests, uh, for foreign interests. You're going to have to register with the Department of Justice and you're going to have to um, you're going to have to disclose what you're doing to just engage in general propaganda uh, in the United States. There were also some early cases where in the 1950s uh, that recognized some restrictions, some unique restrictions on foreign um, free speech in the United States at the same time that the court was recognizing that foreigners on American soil have free speech rights. So it's always been something of a, of a unique, uh, different sort of kettle of fish with different set of interests implicated uh, than those just for American citizens. Now, as far as what we can do, we have a set, we have a uh, set of rules that have served us fairly well over the decades, restricting foreign money uh, and having a set of rules for the um, the conditions under which, um, uh, for example, American corporations that are subsidiaries of foreign corporations, the rules that govern the monies that they can bring into American politics. Um, uh, for example, the money has to come from American sales and revenues. The only people who can direct that money uh, are American citizens. So, for example, if you're a domestic corporation owned by a foreign corporation, the foreign uh, agents of the corporation, including members of the board of directors of that uh, American subsidiary, cannot participate in the expenditures. So I think if you take those general rules, you can apply them to, to nonprofits in the United States. In other words, it's not a leap to say if you are an American nonprofit, you must you can only spend American dollars uh, uh, on your electoral activity. Um, and indeed, by the way, if you are an American nonprofit that's taking in foreign money today and you want to engage in propagandic activities, you have to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. <laughs> There, there's a whole set of rules that are on the shelf right now for the use of foreign money to influence either propaganda or lobbying efforts in the United States. And indeed, we can take those general principles and say, first, have to be Americans making the decisions to spend the money. Second, you have to be spending um, uh, American-originated dollars. I guess I want to push back a little bit, going back to your the very first thing you said when you described the current state of campaign financing. You said the American people are smart, and they can make their own decisions. 
And so why, why is it a different kettle of fish when we're talking about the, the money coming from foreign individuals or governments? If the identity of the speaker doesn't matter, as we were told in Citizens United, why should it matter uh, where the source is coming from? The American people should be smart enough, as you said, to be able to make their own choices here. Well, th that that's been a congressional decision to do. And, um, you know, where I sit, I take Blumen and I take the uh, the law that we have and I enforce that. Um, I, I understand the paradigmatic or the philosophical point you want to score with that one. You want to say, aha, that is the chink in the armor of the libertarian view that Americans uh, can spend unlimited money because it doesn't matter because people have a right to hear regardless of who the speaker is. I, I, I get it, Rick. Uh, 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 it, is a, it is a decent argument. Uh, but as I said, the, uh, the regulation of foreigners on American soil, of non-U.S. citizens. By the way, we tell foreign citizens who have green cards and permanent resident status here in the United States that they have the same First Amendment rights to spend money and make contributions as any American. But uh, Congress has drawn a line. And of course, as you know, the court gave us no rationale in Blumen. It just summarily affirmed the lower court's opinion. So uh, if you want the concession, I, I, I guess I have to concede that, yes, in this context, uh, the court has drawn a, a different line. Um, I don't think, though, that at the end of the day, it topples the whole paradigm that when we're talking about American citizens, uh, they have an unlimited right to speak and the American people can hear and digest what they have to say. It goes to a different set of interests. Uh, and, I, and I grant you, it goes to just a different set of interests than just quid pro quo corruption. I want to turn now to the Federal Election Commission. And uh, I want to ask you if you agree with the commonly viewed sentiment that on the most important questions before the FEC, on issues of disclosure, on issues of coordination, there's essentially a stalemate along ideological lines, not, not necessarily a party stalemate where Republican commissioners are voting to help Republican office holders and Democrats voting to help Democratic office holders, but a fundamental ideological divide with the Democratic commissioners being much more pro-regulation and the Republican commissioners being much more against regulation. Would you agree with that characterization? And if so, is there anything to do about it? Um, I, I agree with the characterization. I think it's undeniable. Uh, the Republicans here take a, a more libertarian view on uh, both First Amendment uh, rights. Uh, we have a broader view of First Amendment rights. And I, I might say, and I, I bring this from years as a practitioner, I come with a highly sensitive skin about due process rights and being fair with people uh, and punishing them only when it's absolutely necessary. Uh, I don't think we, for example, I just issued two statements um, regarding the Wisconsin Democratic Party and the Kentucky Democratic Party. And I lost these votes five to one. Um, and that was, they failed to keep employee logs to record the time kept uh, of each employee on federal activities versus state activities. And I looked at that and I said, well, what is the log requirement for? The log requirement is a, it's not in statute. The, the commission created it by regulation as a tool 
to guard against state parties using their state funds to subsidize federal activities. And I looked at the total expenditures on payroll of those two state parties. And in one case, 80% of their payroll have been paid with federal funds. 20% have been paid with state funds. Yet they had failed to keep the employee logs so that they could prove at the end of the day that state money didn't subsidize federal election activity. And I said, okay, there is a record-keeping requirement. They didn't follow it. We have had an audit that uncovered it. Let's go ahead and make a finding that they violated the law. We have brought them into compliance. They now say that they are keeping the logs. Um, They've gone through the expense uh, of the audit and the enforcement process. But when we look at the end of the day, they haven't done anything bad. They haven't subsidized federal activity with state money. So let's, let's shame them with a finding that they violated a record-keeping requirement. Let's bring them into compliance going forward. But there's no need to assess a civil penalty in this case. And I lost that vote five to one. I use that as an example to show you that, yes, in some cases, my concern is not over just First Amendment rights, but it's also over what's fair and just and overdue process rights for people when they face regulation for doing what? For exercising First Amendment freedoms. So going back to your question, yes, I acknowledge there is a philosophical debate here on many big issues. I discussed dark money a minute ago and where we draw the line uh, over what's the major purpose of an organization. That is one where there has been a clear division um, uh, among commissioners philosophically. Uh, and, uh, and when we have these philosophical disagreements, you know, we have to issue statements that explain the, why we take the position that we do. And we, are, we can be held accountable uh, in a court of law. And right now, in several of the uh, major purpose tests cases, um, the, three re- the position of the three Republican commissioners, which is more libertarian, uh, is being held up for judicial review. And I, I've often said, <laughs> I'll say it again here, uh, I, I acknowledge as I must that I am subject to judicial review. And if a court tells me I make a mistake, uh, then I will uh, obviously correct my mistake. So, so there is a check on this division uh, uh, over where we draw the line on some of these issues. On coordination, um, there has been some disagreement on coordination. It's not quite as severe maybe as, or maybe as distinct, I would say, as, for example, where we draw the line on a major purpose. Uh, at one point, we were being criticized for never enforcing the coordination rules. And so I, I, don't, I don't think these numbers are up to date, but this was in the last year. So we pulled up all of the coordination cases that we had had over a period of a couple of years. And we determined that there were 29 coordination violations alleged at the commission in that period of time. And and excuse me if I torture the statistic uh, because it's not at my fingertips, but in about 28 of the 29 cases, the Office of General Counsel at the commission 
had recommended dismissal. It said there's no real coordination case to be found here. And in, again, I don't want to overstate, in over 20, uh, well over 20 of those cases, we had majority votes to dismiss. Um, and so we, I, I must say, uh, coordination is a, is a difficult issue. Uh, you mentioned it. That's why I'm discussing it. You know, the commission once had a fairly broad view of coordination and the courts clipped the commission's wings. You know, I know I'm, I'm um, speaking to an expert, but for the benefit of your listeners, you know, the, the commission spent the better part of a decade with a very broad view of what coordination was in the Christian coalition case in the 1990s. And there was a fairly unanimous uh, or, uh, or at least majority opinion on the commission for that fairly broad view. And the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia um, said, nope, uh, FEC, uh, you have to recognize that coordination is not as broad a writ to regulate knowledge of people, every conversation that people have, uh, you know, um, uh, you have to acknowledge that coordination investigations are the most highly intrusive investigations into First Amendment activities you can have splashed out there uh, as a result of the FEC's five-year investigation of the Christian coalition were uh, prayers, for example, that people said together um, because it involved uh, Pat Robertson meeting with the, uh, the president of the United States and others to talk about how what activities the Christian coalition was going to engage in to motivate Christian voters. Then the coordination <laughs> doctrine went to Congress and Congress said, well, let's expand it a little bit more in the bipartisan campaign reform act. Then the commission spent the better part of another three or four years in court in the Shays litigation, trying to craft a very tailored and carefully uh, attuned uh, rule of coordination. The result is that people want us to regulate more through the coordination doctrine, and yet the courts have consistently said it is a very limited doctrine. And so it comes down to very fact-specific cases. Now, I'll give you one other example of coordination. Now, late last year, um, the um, two of my colleagues, Commissioner Weintraub and Commissioner Ravel, proposed that we amend our coordination regulations to create a presumption uh, that if you are related, if you have a familial relationship with a candidate and you work with a super PAC, your activity with that super PAC is uh, presumed to be coordinated. And, it, and the, uh, it'll be a rebuttable presumption. And you will now have to come in and prove your innocence to the commission that you did not coordinate. Well, I looked at that very hard and, and, and I, uh, uh, you know, I discussed my, uh, my, my concerns with that proposal in a public meeting in, I believe it was December. First, the Supreme Court has said you cannot presume coordination. Uh, they said that in the Colorado, Colorado One decision in the 1990s where they said parties cannot be presumed to coordinate with their candidates. Secondly, I had concerns over whether we were uh, exposing people to disparate legal treatment and government treatment, all based on familial relationships, which have their own constitutional basis. And uh, I thought that was unfair. Third, I looked at 
the last time we had had a familial relationship in a super PAC. And the case had been dismissed by majority vote with Commissioner Ravel voting to dismiss the case, saying that there is no presumption that just because this fellow was the brother of a candidate that uh, he should be presumed to be to have coordinated. Um, and so for uh, uh, oh, and f f I'll tell you one other issue that I raised was I had looked at the last time that uh, the commission had found reason to believe that there was coordination. And uh, excuse me, I believe that it didn't, they didn't find coordination, but there was a, a, a mixed vote. And there was a family member involved and Commissioner Weintraub had issued, uh, had voted to find reason to believe, even though there were about six affidavits submitted to the commission saying there was no coordination under oath. And I said, I don't know what standard of proof is ever going to allow somebody to uh, avoid this presumption or prove their innocence. So for all those reasons, there was a 3-3 vote on that issue. Um, uh, so going back to your main question, there are philosophical disagreements. I think that at the end of the day, uh, they, they do focus on some major issues like uh, major purpose um, and um, you know, that's, um, uh, those are all a matter of public record. Uh, the last question I want to ask you uh, relates to just the kind of the day-to-day -day life at the commission. Uh, I've heard from enough people that, uh, things, uh, at the FEC can be quite, uh, testy, that some of the staff is somewhat demoralized. Uh, I think a lot of people hope that after Don McGann left, who was such a controversial figure, that things would calm down at the commission, but we hear reports of fights over donuts versus bagels at FEC meetings, and uh, and and uh, we see the uh, there was a uh, I believe it was a GAO uh, survey of satisfaction that, that people who worked at the FEC were not happy. Do you think that's anything that could be done just in terms of the the day to day functioning of the commission that might make it more collegial or cordial, or or maybe you disagree with the premise that there's a problem on those issues. Well, you never uh, let, let me. I, I, I think your question covers it um, uh, cordiality uh, within the commission at two levels. One is uh, the cordiality and professionalism among commissioners, for example, um, and how we conduct our business. Um, uh, I've, uh, I've never raised my voice at another commissioner. <laughs> Uh, I speak with the other commissioners. Uh, they pop their head into my office occasionally. I pop my head in theirs, and I'm talking about my Democratic colleagues as well. Um, and so, yes, uh, I think that uh, we as commissioners need to be as professional as we can be among each other. It, it's difficult, you know, Rick, when you're sitting right in an office next to somebody that you debate with every week <laughs> over issues that you both uh, have very strong opinions on. Uh, it's it's difficult to always uh, remind yourself that these are issues, not people. Uh, and I try to do that. Um, I try my best. Now, um, about the staff, um, I don't disagree necessarily with the finding because the finding uh, reflects the, the 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 results of what real people in the agency have said, and I don't discount that. Um, and so. The fact that there's low morale among employees at the agency concerns me, and 
our inspector general is now has a study ongoing to, to, to get at some of the root causes of low morale in the agency. And I have participated uh, with the IG's consultants. Um, I met with our HR director and had a discussion about this just yesterday. Um, now, I can say that on one level, I always, well, I, I had a suspicion, and I, and I believe on the outside of the agency, uh, this is probably the suspicion as well, that the ideological disagreements um, uh, among commissioners affect morale down below, and, and, and it may. Um, I, I, I don't know how um, the ideological disagreements would not affect some professionals in the building who themselves have strong opinions one way or the other about how they would like the commission to decide votes. And so that, that must be difficult, but, but that's a little bit like the weather here at the commission. Uh, my tact has been, yes, there are going to be ideological dif differences, uh, but we need to handle them professionally. Uh, I can't do anything <laughs> to fix morale if you're asking me to vote a different way substantively. What I've learned um, just by walking the hallways and talking to people, however, is the ideological disagreement is not uh, really entirely the issue here. We have had some internal management challenges. And so you ask me, what are some things that we could do to improve morale at the agency? Well, one that we have needed to do for quite some time is hire a permanent general counsel. And just uh, just to edify the record, uh, Rick, uh, when I was chair in 2014, I first I advanced the names of five or six attorneys in the building for acting general counsel. I thought we needed an acting general counsel, uh, and I wasn't very choosy about which one. Um, and so I supported at least five or six names in the building to do that. Uh, late in my chairmanship here, I supported a permanent the hiring of a a very impressive, experienced person to be our permanent general counsel who was interested in the job. And although I can't discuss, you know, confidential personnel information, I, I assure you, Rick, that had we hired him, he would have had respect on both sides of the, of the aisle. Um, he had a long career uh, in government, uh, working with both sides of the aisle. And, uh, but I was blocked. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, we've let our Office of General Counsel go uh, leaderless for too long. And now we have an, a very uh, effective and good acting general counsel in Dan Patalis. Um, but we need, to, we need to find a permanent general counsel, whoever that may be. So, uh, you know, the, the commission is uh, considering uh, office space. I think that's something I, I remember working for the Attorney General of Virginia. And when I first worked for the Attorney General of Virginia, the Attorney General's office was located in the old Supreme Court building in Richmond, Virginia. And it reminded me a lot of this old building we're in here <laughs> at the FEC. And uh, the Attorney General got uh, an option on space in a new office building a few blocks away in downtown Richmond. And I can tell you that move itself gave people windows and sunlight and a very professional environment to work in. And so that's something that I think would improve morale. Um, and so beyond that, I got to tell you, I, uh, I look forward to hearing what our IG report has to say and, and acting on many of those recommendations. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on and, and having a very uh, interesting and frank discussion with me. I, I think our uh, listeners are really going to appreciate it.
Hey, Rick. Before we get off the before we get off the interview here, there is something I, I just need to say, <laughs> and that is that you know, uh, leading up to this interview, I read your book, Plutocrats United, and I I just want to commend it to readers on all sides of the political spectrum uh, for its candor. Um, you know, I I thought that the book was articulate and well argued from the reform viewpoint. Uh, I think a layperson could pick it up, read it, and understand. Uh, the reform argument quite well. It also, uh, you spend many pages explaining the libertarian argument uh, by way, of course, of responding to it, but you give, uh, you give uh, airing to the libertarian point of view as well. And also, I, I, I think its honesty is refreshing. You know, uh, uh, I don't know what type of criticism you take <laughs> in the reform community for your honesty, but you know, it acknowledges the Buckley paradigm, and uh, you know, it acknowledges uh, that speech doesn't always, or expenditures for speech don't always decide the outcome of elections. Um, and it says, I think, quite frankly, let's take speech equalization as a paradigm, let's put it out on the table, and let's debate it, because that really is at bottom what people are debating uh, when they discuss more regulation versus less regulation. I give a lot of speeches uh, at colleges and law schools, and I can spend a lot of time talking about Buckley v. Vallejo and the paradigm that money is a speech or at least implicates speech rights and therefore a restriction. And, and as soon as I finish talking, all of the questions come down to this. Is it fair? Does egalitarianism trump you know, free speech? And we can have that fair debate if people will be as honest as your book is. So I just want to say I, I commend your book to those on, on all sides of the spectrum uh, as a fair rendition of, of the reform argument. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. And, uh, and once again, I appreciate you coming on and, and having this discussion. So thanks so much. Anytime, Rick. Thank you. Bye-bye. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenkline. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassen. Goodbye.